And today we are in 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 16. We're beginning a section of 2 Corinthians that I just really love. I'm excited about this. Uh, chapter 4 is one of my favorite chapters in Scripture, and we're almost there. But even the end of chapter 3 is just, well, I hope you'll love it as much as I do, especially the, the last verse that we're going to get to today. So in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage to you? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ it is taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. Before I get into the sermon, I just uh, I want to comment on... on uh, the, the time that we are going through as a nation and the contention and the, and the division that's going on in our world. However, we are citizens of heaven, amen? And we have something much greater than a, a, a worldly kingdom. Yes, we live in a democratic republic where we can look at the candidate and the one that they're opposing, and we can listen to their debates, and we, we should decide which one it has the most godly mindset and the most uh, biblical uh, view of morality and vote for that candidate. But you know what? The kingdoms of this world will come and go. I love America. But America is not forever. Daniel chapter 2 tells us all the kingdoms of this world are like that image of a man. And this stone is cut out of the mountain and it strikes the image and the image is destroyed and the rock becomes a mighty kingdom that fills the whole earth. And that is what we're waiting for, amen? Well, actually, we're not waiting for it. We're in it right now, amen? If you're in Christ, you're already in that kingdom. Now, we're not experiencing the rain over the whole earth like we will one day, but that's our kingdom. That's our hope. We're citizens of heaven. Amen? So, I don't know where you're at, but if you're discouraged about the elections, know that we have uh, a sovereign Lord over all, and he will use it all for his glory. He sets up kings and he takes them down. So, no matter what happens or what your political view is, God is on the throne. Amen? And if we go through hardship, then he uses it to, to teach us and discipline us and guide us. 
And if he brings blessing, it's so that we can be a blessing to others. Amen? So, fellow citizens of heaven, I'm going to go back to verse 12 again. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. The hope that Paul's referring to was in those previous verses, and that hope that should cause us to be very bold is that we're recipients of the new covenant, not the old covenant where we had to try to keep the law and, and, and try to be obedient and try to hope that we were doing the right things and that we could be obedient enough. We have the answer that's been sought throughout history. We know how to be right with God. We know how to have the promise of heaven. We have a glory greater than the shining face of Moses. We bring the words of life to a desperate and dying world. Amen? What, the, what our country, what the world needs more than any political stance and any political theory or philosophy is to know Jesus, the King of Kings. Amen? And so the life of Christ in us will work through us to bring that his light into the darkness of this world. And we should be very bold. Gracious, yes, but bold as well. You know, too often, I don't know about you, but <laughs> every once in a while we have a conversation and, and I, I'm, I, I'm thinking, oh, that reminds me of a verse. But then I kind of, Oh, if I bring up the name of Jesus, how are they going to react? Has that ever happened to you? Or you bring up the name of Jesus and they're like, wait, let's don't go there. Or they mock you for your ignorant belief and tell you that they've evolved beyond that. I've heard that a lot in Sedona. Oh, I know what you're talking about. I used to be there, but I've evolved. Or they tell you, yeah, oh, I know Jesus, and I love Jesus, but it's not a Jesus, anything like the Jesus in Scripture. We get a lot of that here, too. It's a Jesus, really, of their own imagination. And how they will respond, though, doesn't really matter. We have the living Christ in us, so let us shine his glory into the darkness of this world. Amen? Say the words that he gives you. If he prompts a verse, share it. Love them unconditionally and share how he changed your life. Listen to them, but also then tell them what the word of God says about that belief. You don't have to do it in a confrontational way. You can just say, yeah, I, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. I believe, and then share what the scripture says. Tell them how much God loves them and why he loves them. And we do it because... We have such a hope, and that causes us to be very bold. Now, we should never be obnoxious. Don't sound like a know-it-all and talk down to them, but patiently hear their opinions, ask questions. That was one of Jesus' great tools, was asking questions. You know, they'd come up with a question, he'd respond with a question to help draw out where they were really at. But then we should boldly give them Jesus as the answer to our greatest need. If you're confident in Christ toward God and that he is your sufficiency, if he's made you the sufficient minister of the new covenant, of the spirit that gives life, and if you're a recipient of that permanent, glorious new covenant, 
why would we not have hope that causes us to be very bold? If the fruit of the Spirit's shining through us, it's bound to leave an impression. People will, you know, there's sometimes people come to you with these bizarre beliefs that are really illogical, don't have any basis in real history, and confront us with a real boldness and self-assurance. And we need to mature to a point that we are even more confident in the Lord and his word and lovingly respond with holy boldness that he prompts us to share. It's not often that facts will convince someone, but the power of the Holy Spirit in and through us bring, will bring the right verse that's going to stir in their heart or the right question that causes them to reconsider what they believe. Verse 13 not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Now Paul is about to, to use this contrast, our hope and boldness and glory with that of Moses when he came down from Mount Sinai. Moses went up to Sinai. He talked with God for 40 days. When he came back down, his face was just glowing and the Israelites asked him to cover it. So he put a veil over his face. The shining glory, though, faded over time. Paul's saying that like the glory of the old, that's like the glory of the old covenant of the laws that came to an end when Jesus established the new covenant in his blood. Like the fading glory on Moses' face, the glory of the law was fading as well as people found out that it became a yoke of bondage. Surely it gave them a better life than the cultures around them. It showed them sanitation and a good form of government. It pictured things to come prophetically, that there's so many pictures of Christ in it, but it became tedious duty. And then man added thousands of rules around the 613 rules of the law, and that even made it even more tedious. They referred to the rules as a hedge to keep them from accidentally breaking the law. They needed to hear Jesus tell them that loving God with your all and your neighbor as yourself fulfilled all the laws of Moses. But who can do that? Who can love your neighbor? And Jesus expanded your neighbor as basically anyone you run into with a need. Who can love your neighbor better than yourself. It's impossible. And so even that law that Jesus pulled out of De Deuteronomy chapter 6, even that law tells us we need a savior. We need somebody to intervene for us between us and God because we just can't do it. Even if you boil it down to those two basic rules that Jesus did, we can't even keep those rules without the Holy Spirit. And so the glory of the old covenant faded until what was permanently glorious came, which is the new covenant. Verse 14, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. So Paul compares the veil over Moses' face to the veil that's over the mind of the Jewish people when they read the Old Testament. The veil kept people from seeing the glory on Moses' face fade. 
and the veil over their minds keeps them from seeing the glory of the law fade. The veil to back then and even today is reinforced by rabbinical teaching that tells them never look at that cursed new covenant. It tells them that Jesus was a bastard son of a Roman soldier and that he practiced sorcery. They even avoid saying his name in Hebrew because his name means salvation. So instead of saying his name, they turn it into the word Yeshu instead of Yeshua, which is an acronym for may his name and memory be blotted out. That's just one ex example of how rabbis reinforced the veil, further hardening the Jewish minds. The results are a desperate effort to rely on works, which is a distortion of the law that's meant to convict us and show us our need for a savior. It's the same with all false religions. Do these things and God will accept you, they say. Just keep these rules. That's to bring God down from his holy righteousness and have him ignore the need for justice. Being holy is not a credit added to your soul like a gold star or so many points. Does a good deed outweigh a bad one? Goodness is simply what we should do. But they have no answer for our sins. They say repent, but why should God accept our repentance? Are five Our Fathers and seven Hail Marys enough to nullify our rebellious actions? Are the five pillars of Islam enough for a holy God? Is repentance alone enough? The only just reason to forgive us is that Jesus took our sins upon himself and took the punishment we deserve dying in our place, taking our sins, and giving us his righteousness. That's why Paul concluded, only through Christ is the veil taken away. The veil of good works being good enough for God isn't just a Jewish thing. It's pretty much a worldwide religion of any kind except biblical Christianity. Because the standard is Jesus. And none of us lives up to that standard. The standard not being better than Jeffrey Dahmer or Hitler or the guy next door. Isaiah learned that when Jesus lifted the veil from his eyes. In Isaiah chapter 5, and I encourage you to read 5 and 6 together, Isaiah 5 and 6. Isaiah is just lambasting his culture and all the sins of the Jewish nation at the time. And then in chapter 6, He's in the temple, and he sees the Lord. And all of a sudden, it becomes personal. And he says, woe is me. Woe is me for all the garbage that comes out of my mouth. He says, I'm unraveled. I'm undone in the presence of a holy God. Through Christ, the veil is taken away. His repentance was only accepted because the day would come when Jesus would take the sins of Isaiah, of yours, and of mine upon himself. Jesus is lifting the veil around the world today. That really excites me. 
because it means we're nearing the end. In Israel and in Islamic nations that are closed to missionaries, Jesus is revealing himself to people who are seeking the truth. And when they see him, just like Isaiah saw him, the veil is removed. They realize their good deeds are not good enough. And in fact, the most reported words that they say that this revelation of Jesus says to them is right out of Scripture, John 14, 6. Jesus says to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Now, they never read that. They're living in a nation where they can't even possess the New Testament, where it's dangerous to possess the New Testament. And Jesus appears to them and quotes scripture. Now, why would he quote scripture? He is the word incarnate. And then when they, meet, they finally find a Bible and they find out it's in scripture, they'll know scripture is inspired word of God because it's the same thing he spoke to them. They suddenly realize their rules or the five pillars of Islam or all their good deeds have been a veil and what they really need is a savior who loves them and gave himself for them. In Israel, one of the most respected rabbis of our time, Yitzhak Kaduri, had a revelation of the Messiah in 2003. And then just before he died at the age of 108, he gave his disciples, the ones he was mentoring, a sealed envelope and told them to lock it up upon his death and one year later to open it up and to share it with the world because it had the name of the Messiah on it. So one year later after his death, they finally opened the envelope and they posted what seemed to be a cryptic note on their website. And for two weeks, no one questioned the message. They didn't understand it, but they didn't question it. And then someone finally saw that the first letter of every word put together spelled out the Hebrew name for Jesus, Yehoshua. And then all heck broke loose in Israel. Suddenly, the Jewish world was in an uproar trying to disprove it, calling it a fake. And meanwhile, Rabbi Kaduri's disciples began evangelizing. And I think it was probably a track written by those disciples that Mikael's brother found on his way home from a bar one night. The little track was in somebody's windshield. He, he saw the picture of owl and he really loved owls for some reason. He went over and he picked up the track and he opened it and it's all in Hebrew. And it says, uh, which rabbi said, I am the light of the world? Which rabbi said, no one comes to the father but by me? Which rabbi's touch could heal someone? If you want to find out, come to our synagogue at so-and-so address. <laughs> I mean, so Jews are seeing visions of Jesus. In fact, I met on one of our trips to Israel, I met a woman who served in the Knesset, one of the wealthiest families in Israel. 
they owned the boat company that, uh, that was about to take us out on the Sea of Galilee, and she wanted to sit down and talk with me. And I said, sure, you know, and Holy Spirit was so present. I just pushed my food away from me and said, yeah, what is it? And she said, what, what would you say if I said I saw Jesus on the lake? I said, what did he look like? She said he had a white robe and a red sash. I said, yeah, that's in Revelation. And so I asked her, are you, are you telling people that you believe in Jesus? She said, I can't. Our family's so important in Israel. I haven't been able to do it. And so I shared with her the need to come out, how we must confess him before men. But Jews and Arabs, sons and daughters of Abraham, are having revelations of Jesus, the biblical Jesus. Amen. Only through Christ is the veil taken away, and he's lifting it in our day. Verse 15. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, the veil lies over their hearts. So the reaction to the revelation of Rabbi Kaduri was swift and it was strong, trying to discredit it. In fact, Kaduri's own son put it in acid and threw it into the Dead Sea. Why didn't he have the writing analyzed if he believed it was fake? A well-known rabbi and radio host of Voice of Israel, Rabbi Singer, denounced it claiming it was a fraud. But where was all the skepticism the first two weeks before they found out the mystery of the note? No one doubted its authenticity then. Even in Sedona, right here in little Sedona, Arizona, Rabbi Singer's denunciation of the revelation keeps our local Jews from receiving the revelation and missing the hundreds of messianic prophecies in the Old Testament that line up with the life of Jesus. If Jesus was not the Messiah, then I would ask, where is the line of David today? Because it was the line of David that was to bring forth the Messiah. And yet, uh, I only know of one man who claims to, be, to have evidence that he can trace his line, lineage back to David. And uh, he went to the Knesset and tried to ask them to declare him to be a king, and they just kind of laughed at him. The most troubling passage, though, for Jews who don't believe Jesus is the Messiah is Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. In Daniel 9, 26, it predicts, Daniel the prophet, 600 years before Christ, predicted that the Messiah would come and die for the sins of the people, and then... Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed. So anyone after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD claiming to the, be the Messiah cannot be true. It would be denying Daniel's prophecy. That's a challenge for Jews who don't who accept the fact that or believe that there's still the Messiah is still to come. Jews for Jesus today in Israel approach their fellow Jews with the Hebrew Old Testament and without showing them that it's the Hebrew Old Testament, 
they ask if they can read them something. And they, you know, okay, read it to me. And they read Isaiah 53 to them in Hebrew and ask them, who is it about? And sometimes uh, they have videos of this on the internet. You can, you can look it up on YouTube. Sometimes the, the Jewish person will respond, you shouldn't be reading that, that book of the Gentiles, that cursed book. And they'll say, but look, it's your prophet Isaiah. That brings great conviction because they thought it was the New Testament being read to them. And then they find out it's right out of their prophets. That's why the Torah schools and the readings in the synagogues skip Isaiah 53. But they can't stop the veil from lifting. Verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Actually, what Paul's doing is he's taking Exodus 34, 34 and slightly rewording it. That's something Paul does regularly in Scripture. He was so steeped in the Old Testament. In that passage, Moses was, it talks about Moses going into the tent of meeting. Moses would, uh, when he needed to hear from God, he would walk, he had a special tent away from the the nation where they were camping, set apart, and he'd go into the tent. The cloud that led them through the wilderness would come over the tent. Whoa, that was a sound effect. <laughs> and he'd go into the tent, but as he went into the tent, he'd take his veil off. You see what Paul's getting at? And then he would commune with the Lord. So that's why Paul's writing, when one turns to the Lord, as Moses turned to enter the tent of meeting, the veil is removed, just as Moses removed his veil before the Lord. When the Jew starts to open, or anyone, to the fact that Jesus may be the Messiah, only then are they willing to look at the prophecies that were fulfilled in his life. Even more importantly, they realize the ultimate sacrifice for their sins has already been slain and they can have peace with God. Mikael told me that when he became a believer, he cried for a week when he realized Jesus was his Savior, that the Messiah had already come. And all he wants to do now is evangelize the Jewish people. You know, the prediction that 144,000 will be Jews doesn't surprise me at all because I see their zeal once they realize the truth. The pressure of the law and the Jewish animosity towards Christians only makes freedom in Christ even more glorious. That's what happened to the apostle who wrote this letter to the Corinthians. He's describing his own experience on the road to Damascus. We should understand that Jews have a reason though to be skeptical. Christians, and I use that word Christian in the sense of cultural, not of faith, have persecuted Jews as Christ killers. But their persecutors weren't followers of Jesus who told us to love our enemies. Did you know that when Iranian, and that, by the way, Iran is one of the most fastest growing churches in the world today. That's part of this big uprising that's taking place in Iran. A lot of those people are Christians. And when they become believers, 
they love Israel. They love the Jewish people. Once, you know, out in the streets chanting, death to Israel, death to Israel, but they come to Christ and all of a sudden they find in their heart this love for the Jewish people. And recently, the Jewish people are finding they have a friend in the real followers of Jesus. You'll notice in our culture that those who like to call everyone a bigot are often bigoted against the Jews and side with terrorists. The Jewish people are as diverse as Christians are. There are liberal secular Jews who hate the Orthodox. There are the Orthodox who think secular Jews are keeping the Messiah from coming and destroying the faith. And there's everything in between, including those who don't think Israel should be a nation. When we speak with Jews, we can remind them of the diversity in, within Christianity to help them understand that all Christians aren't followers of Jesus. There's a shift taking place right now in Israeli attitude towards Christians. They see Christian organizations feeding the poor in Israel and serving in their military. It would have been unthinkable just a few decades ago to have a Christian of rank in the military or in the parliament, but now it's accepted. The veil is lifting. It's a fascinating time to be alive. So verse 17, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Hallelujah. We're free from the constant worry about whether we're breaking a rule. Jesus has fulfilled the law for us, giving us his righteousness. And we're free not to do what our old nature desires. We're liberated from that old nature that says, I want, I want, I want. And free to follow Christ. To walk in the spirit, to let the spirit behind the law guide us in the path of righteousness. Our load of guilt is lifted when we come to the cross and cast it on our Savior. Someone once said that the problem with humanity is that our wanter is broken we have a wanter right and it's broken we desire all the wrong things but when we come to christ the big change that the spirit of god is living in us fixes our wanter we begin to have this distaste for the old desires and we want to know god's word we want to live in him we want to experience his life flowing through us and we want to love him in return. We want to be more like Jesus every day that passes. That's freedom. That's Paul's talking about here. Freedom from the old nature that kept us in bondage to desires that were harmful for us. Those old desires sometimes brought momentary pleasure, for sure, but they never fulfilled us like we hoped they would. They never last. And the cost is always more than we expect. The Lord who lifted the veil is the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are our Lord. And when he takes up residence in us, we're free from the things that held us back from being who God created us to be. 
We're free to say no to sin and yes to the Spirit. We're free to experience the fruits of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience, and to reject selfishness and discouragement and pessimism. Verse 18. One of the most beautiful verses in Scripture. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. One of my favorite verses. The veil is lifted by the Lord when we turn to him. Our heart softens and then we begin to see him in his word and in the details of our lives. We see the amazing coordination of circumstances that have had to have been orchestrated by God. And we're instruments in God's hands for him to touch people through us. You know, this morning, in my prayer time, the Lord brought me back through my life and he showed me the painful things and how those painful things came about because of people's choices, because of their wrong choices. But then he showed me how he used it in my life for my good and how he kept me from what the enemy had planned through those, those difficulties in my life. And I would encourage you to do the same thing. Just think back over your life and think how the difficulties and the trials and the hardships that you went through and yet how God brought you through them for his glory and to, to make you into a person more into, conformed into his image. We also behold the glory of the Lord in the beauty of creation. You know, our educational system has really done a number on us to dull us from the glory of God that's all around us. The heavens declare the glory of God. An astronomer explains that everything's just a big cosmic accident. It has no meaning. Stardust just kind of came together and made this incredible language that we call DNA. No need to wonder at the glory of God and all living things. It's just an accident, they say. But our faces have been unveiled. And we see the absurdity of their explanations. Trying to discredit our wondrous creator. No, we can see the glory of God in all created things. And as we behold the glory of God in his creation, in prayer and circumstances, in his word, we are increasingly transformed. The Greek word here for that transform is metamorpho, that we get our word metamorphosis, worm to a butterfly. And one day that's going to physically be true. Hallelujah. For right now, it should be taking place in our spirits as we behold the glory of the Lord and are changed from one degree of glory to another. When Moses came down from the mountain, he didn't know his face shined. And in a similar way, when we spend time with the Lord, 
we will not be aware that people see something of the glory of the Lord upon us as we manifest the fruits of the Spirit. It just increasingly becomes a part of our behavior and our way of living. The likeness of Christ is seen in us, and that's what the Holy Spirit is doing in us if we are beholding the glory of the Lord. From one degree of glory to another, we are changed. It doesn't happen all at once, but little by little. Yes, the old is gone and the new has come at the moment of salvation, but working that out in our speech and in our actions takes time. Trees don't mature in a week or a month. Their roots need time to grow. And old habits sometimes die hard. Patterns of thinking take time to be changed by meditating on the word of God. Reliance on self must sometimes be broken through hardships and through defeats, but it's a work of the spirit and he is consistent and he is faithful. You say you want to speed up the process? You're tired of the old man or old woman taking back the throne of your heart? Then slow down and spend more time beholding the glory of the Lord. Let him speak to you in his word. Marvel at the goodness of God in your life and in creation. See how he intervenes in your days and give him praise as you behold his glory. And the more you do, the transformation will come from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's the same as saying that the transformation will come from your master, who is the Spirit. So learn to sense his voice, his gentle taps on the shoulder, his stirring within, and stop and be still and behold the glory of the Lord and give him praise. Principal Rainey challenged the congregation at the communion table in Edinburgh with the following words. Do you believe your faith? He asked. Do you believe this that I'm telling you? Do you believe a day is coming, I mean really coming, when you will stand before the throne of God and the angels will whisper together and say, how like Christ he is. It's not easy to believe, is it? And yet not to believe it is blasphemy. For that, and not less than that, is what Christ promises. So church, behold his glory and be changed from glory to glory. If you really want to change, behold his glory. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song?